This is Radio Influence, podcasting redefined. Welcome back to the Lawfather Podcast. As always, I ask you to check us out on social media and and rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Doing all of those things uh, really helps us out. You can check out our social media. Just search for at the Lawfather, and that'll bring you up uh, in Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. So go ahead and check that out. And we try to put some good content on there. We have a few things that we're doing now and. Uh, every Tuesday we have Tip Tuesday and Fridays are free advice or fact Friday, depending on what exactly we are doing. So please uh, go ahead and check those things out. And you know, we just finished Jeep Fest uh, about a week ago and uh, it was a good event and want to thank everybody for coming out and all of those who supported Frankie Injury Law and the Law Father and picked up some of our gear. So uh, do want to thank all of those people. If you do want some Lawfather Jeep gear, please reach out to us. Uh, the email for the show is lawfather at tampalawfather.com. So please reach out to me on that email. And as always, you can ask questions uh, right there on that email address as well. I uh, want to get into kind of some current event type topics here today. And, you know, I, I try to avoid getting into anything political, but sometimes the political aspect of things and the legal aspect of things cross paths. And the analysis that we're going to talk about today does involve President Trump, but not from the political aspect to it. And we're going to be looking at it strictly from a legal analysis side. As you may be aware, President Trump recently signed some executive orders in uh, once uh, the the legislative branch has failed to create some additional coronavirus relief. President Trump went ahead and signed some executive orders to uh, work on those things. So I want to discuss those today, but it kind of taking a step back here and looking at some things. And I went to law school at, at Stetson University College of Law. And one of my professors there just happened to be one of the attorneys that was involved in Gideon versus Wainwright, which is a huge, huge constitutional law uh, case, Supreme Court case, and my constitutional law professor was one of the attorneys that was part of that case. So definitely learned constitutional law from a very good source, uh, Gideon versus Wainwright. That was a case that involved uh, right to legal counsel. So prior to Gideon versus Wainwright, or at least at the time of Gideon versus Wainwright, there was no explicit uh, right to counsel uh, if you had been charged with a felony. So it was a criminal case. And the result of the case law that stemmed from that Supreme Court case said that everybody is entitled to an attorney uh, for their defense. And I would imagine without doing a deep dive research into it, it spawned the offices of public defender, as we call them in Florida. Uh, not sure what the other states call them, but basically you know, public defenders, uh, if you will, that's that's what that likely spawned. Uh, so let's get into what we're dealing with, with President Trump and the executive orders. And let's take a look first at what are our branches of government? And I know we're taking kind of a step back and something that a lot of us probably learned in grade school or middle school, maybe even high school. But it's important to know what each branch's rights are and, and what their job is. Okay, so the three branches of government 
is the legislative branch, the executive branch, and the judicial branch. And the idea is that they have checks and balances with each other, and they all have their own specific purpose. So the legislative branch, their job is to make laws. The executive branch, their job is to carry out the laws. And the judicial branch, in turn, evaluates those laws. So that's what the branches of government do. They're supposed to stay in their own lane and do their own thing. Uh, The judicial branch really is kind of forced to truly stay in their own lane, I think, more than the other two branches, just because they can't generally call up questions themselves. Uh, There are some ways that that can happen, but there has to be some preceding things in order for that to come about. So. The executive branch, though, definitely has the ability to step outside of its lane a little bit more than the other branches, okay? And and part of that comes with the fact that the president sits as the top of the executive branch. Now, the legislative branch is made up of the Senate and the House of Representatives, and the judicial branch is made up of the Supreme Court and then the lower federal courts. So that's what we look at here, and, and that's what comes about when we talk about executive orders. Now, one of the things to look at is we hear a lot about executive orders and um, President Trump. And what I found through some scholarly articles is that President Trump hasn't necessarily signed any more executive orders than any other president has. Uh, They've been more controversial. And It's been out in the limelight a little bit more uh, because they've been more controversial. So it maybe gives the appearance that there's more. Uh, So I think that's kind of an important thing to look at is to know that from a numbers perspective, there's not more. Uh, Is it pushing the envelope some? Uh, Yeah, most likely. And I think this last executive order uh, has pushed the envelope uh, even greater than some of the previous ones. Uh, And we've talked about this a little bit in the past on this show uh, with some of my dealings in contract law and having represented businesses in the past is that you can have what's called a litigatable issue. And, you know, if we take it and we look at what we would more see on an everyday basis on a contract action, no matter what you do in a contract, you're going to have some sort of litigatable issues that come up. And that's the same thing that we have any time a president ha- does an executive order. Okay, it happened with President Obama and uh, his Affordable Care Act. There was some litigation that ensued as a result. So no matter what you do, it is litigatable. Okay, and anytime you do something where you're unilaterally as a president taking an action, you're going to upset some people, and you're not going to upset other people. It's just a matter of how it's going to be. I can't imagine that you could have any one executive order done by any president ever that has 100% approval. It's just it's just not reality. Just like no contract is 100% ironclad, you're always going to have something that you can attach to. Okay? Now, the idea and the thought process is is that these executive orders are done in good faith and that they at least attempt to follow the law. And that's what we're going to dive into a little bit and see what we're working with here, what laws and and everything else. And that's why we talked a little bit about the different branches, because all of that reverts back to the Constitution. And the Constitution is a living, breathing, active document. Okay, yes, it's just words on paper. And yes, it is 
back from the 1700s, okay? And are we a lot different today in in 2020 than we were in the 1700s? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Now, the important thing, though, is that it was drafted in a way that it could be interpreted and read and essentially changed over time as times changed. So, you know, the the forefathers who wrote it, hey, you know, kind of hats off to them to figure that out, that times are going to change. Uh, now, I don't think anybody could foresee how much times would change. And I mean more from a technological advances and being where we are today with with a pandemic. And I know we had one in the early 1900s, but you know that was kind of a long way from the 1700s when the Constitution was signed. So we're looking at really the Constitution and what rights does the president have. And it kind of breaks down into two categories, normal time and when there's been an emergency declaration. And there's been time before President Trump that Congress has actually expanded the abilities of a president to sign executive orders in a time when there's been an emergency declared. And President Trump has declared the necessary emergencies pretty early on in the pandemic. And what that has done is it's given him the ability and opened up the doors to maybe you can sign an executive order that says you can do things such as enhancing unemployment benefits, deferring student loans, and some housing protections for uh, those that have federally backed mortgages. And that's what we're looking at today are those topics. Uh, and then there's the the last one is the payroll tax and the deferment of payroll tax. And you may say, okay, well, what's what's the importance of payroll tax and what is that? That is your Social Security and Medicare. Okay, so that's what funds those two programs. All right, you may see it in your uh, in your paycheck. It comes out as FICA or it comes out as Social Security and Medicare. Okay, if you take a look back at a pay stub, you should see those things on there. That's what funds those programs so that when you retire, those programs are available to you. Now, to take a look at the Constitution, the Constitution gives Congress the power to control federal spending. Okay, so let's look at that first. The first aspect of this is the president saying, we're going to give unemployment benefits in the amount of $400 per week. Now, previously under the original bill, which has since expired, it was $600. Now it's $400. And out of that $400, a hundred of that is being told to, being told to be paid by the state. So essentially, federal government is kicking in 300 States should kick in the other 100 okay? Now, we just said that Congress controls spending. Now, wouldn't this be spending? Yes, it would be, okay? But let's look at another piece to this. And over time, Congress has given the president the ability to make fiduciary decisions and move money around from budgets. Uh, if we go back to the border wall issue from earlier, um, I, I don't recall exactly, may have been a year two years ago with everything going on with the pandemic, everything feels like a blur that happened just before uh, this time. But what President Trump did in signing that executive order was he moved money around that was already appropriated and moved it into funding that program. Now, right, wrong, or indifferent, that's the mechanics of it, right? And as I said in the beginning, I'm not getting into the political aspect of whether it's 
right or wrong. We're looking at the, from a legal aspect, can you do this? Is that okay? Right? So you know, one of the things that we look at is what do the rules say? What do the laws say? Right? And we look at what does case law say? And we essentially say, can we make an argument on either side of this thing? And if you're the advisors and attorneys for the White House, you're looking at it from a perspective of, can we move this money? And if you're on the flip side of it and you don't think that it should be done and you're the attorneys for that side, you're looking at the other side of it saying, no, this is why you can't move that money. And you're always going to have this gray area. There's very little that's black and white in law. Now, may a court come through and make a ruling that says one side is right and the other side's wrong? Yes, they could. Uh, Could I also pretty confidently say you could take that same issue and take it to another court and another group of judges and come up with a different a different answer? Yes. Uh, we see it all the time. Uh, we see when we argue motions, we sometimes can get a feel for the different judges. And the more you're in front of different judges, you get a feel for this judge generally rules like this. And this other judge generally rules in a different way. Uh, some are, from our standpoint, more plaintiff-oriented. Some are more defense-oriented. So you come up with this, there is truly no right or wrong, okay? And it seems kind of weird to say that there's no right or wrong. It's just essentially what you can do and what you can't do. So that's how we get here. And what the president has done is he's saying that there's some emergency funds that are available, and he's going to appropriate those funds and move them into this other bucket over here and use this other bucket to pay this $400, well, $300 from the federal government per week for those that are affected. Okay, so seemingly he may have the right to do so, although in and of itself, as he's signing the executive order, he's saying, hey, I most likely will get sued because of this. So, you know, is it a strong case that he can do that? Probably not. Um, Is it maybe a stretching of some of the laws? Possibly, but it's out there. It exists. Uh, It's something that he can hang his hat on and say, and his attorneys can hang their hat on and say, this is why we did this. Okay, this is why we moved this money from A to B. Now, we look at the the tax issue next, and a president can't get rid of a tax. The legislature can, okay, but the president can't. And if we look at this and we take kind of a deeper dive look into what it is, it's not abolishing that payroll tax. It's deferring that payroll tax. So it's just saying, if and I, I believe the the benchmark is a hundred thousand dollars. If you make less than a hundred hundred, excuse me, if you make a hundred thousand dollars or less, you can defer your payroll taxes and pay them later. Um, so that's one of those things that if it's a deferral versus a we're not going to do that period, does the president have the right? Maybe. I think that's going to be more of a gray area. I think all of these things really fall into a gray area with the exception of student loans, which we'll touch on uh, just in one second here. But the the tax issue, you know, it's most likely going to be the biggest issue that has more of the, hey, you probably legally don't have the authority to do this. But if you're doing it as a deferral, you have a better chance of surviving and winning that battle there. Uh, you know, as most people, when they pay their taxes, they get a refund on their taxes. 
they're not truly getting a refund in terms of, you know, free money, if you will. Most of the times that money is money that you've already paid in. And by the time you've taken your deductions and everything else, you're getting that money back. So essentially, when you get a refund from the government on your taxes, you are generally getting your own money back. So that's kind of an important thing to look at. So like I said, the executive order is written as a deferral, not as a we're going to get rid of it completely. Now, the student loans, okay, kind of a big thing. Uh, Those of us who have been to law school definitely know a little bit about student loans. And the executive order touches on uh, Department of Education loans only, so federal student loans only. And what this is looking at doing and what this executive order says is that the interest and payments will be deferred until January. Okay, Uh, I think this is the one that the president has the most legs to stand on. There are there is some precedent in the past that shows that the president does have the ability to make changes to student loans and that area. So we look at that, and and from a legal analysis perspective, I don't see that if anybody were to challenge it to be a spot where the president is going to lose any kind of legal battle. Uh, And then lastly is the uh, the federally backed mortgages, and that executive order touches on that uh, evictions and. Uh, the processes that are involved in, in foreclosure will be told, uh, will be suspended, if you will, um, until, and I'm not sure the exact date, but they're going to be suspended for a period of time based on that executive order. So um, let's look at just a couple things here, though, because just because you do something that isn't favorable, that that people don't like, uh, can you be sued? And who can sue you? And, and that's really the biggest topic. And in the legal world, we call it standing. Who has standing to sue the president in these issues? Uh, let's look at student loans. That's the kind of neatest and cleanest. Um, you know, really, the, the people who pay student loans could have standing to sue the president. I can't imagine why you would. Uh, so whether or not the president could or couldn't suspend the student loans until January is kind of immaterial because who that is repaying a loan is going to say, no, please make me pay this. So I'm going to fight you in court. Uh, I just don't think that's a likely scenario. So I don't, I don't foresee any kind of real legal battles going on there about that. Uh, let's take a look at the unemployment piece to it. I think that's a spot where you could potentially see some decent legal action. And whether I, you know, like I said, not to make this political, I find it, I'm hard pressed to believe that a Republican in the legislative branch would file suit against the against a Republican president. I just do. I can't imagine that happening, but it could. Uh, could see it more happening from the Democratic side with a Republican president. And if we had a Democratic president at the time, you most likely see it on a Republican pre- uh, Republic Republican Congressperson. Okay, that's what I would typically see. All right, and that's what I would expect. So I do think that'll get some challenges, but is that going to be favorable to the public? And is the public going to look down on that? And the public who desperately needs that influx of, I've lost my job and I need some money coming in. Um, So, you know, is that going to be a good move? Sometimes it's not, if you can sue, it's should you sue, right? And it's just, that's the bigger question, right? 
And then when we look at the tax piece, I think you could also see a decent amount of litigation on that piece of it. Now, it's just a deferment. So, you know, I don't see that as much of a politicized type thing and and people really pushing back on it because you're still going to have to pay that money in. It's just you don't have to pay it right now. I I do think that the, you know, bigger issue is going to be the the $300 in federal spending per person that per week that they're going to look at putting out there. So what really come down to in all of this is you can sue, but should you sue? And that's going to be the biggest question all of these people are going to have to answer. Now, potentially the easiest answer here is if the legislative branch comes through and they meet and they decide to pass some laws and, and acts and bills and make those acts and bills laws and make them active, what will that do to the executive orders? And I think what you could possibly see here is less in terms of litigation and more in terms of the two sides coming back to the table and saying, hey, we need to figure this out because what's been put out there is not palatable for us. It doesn't work. It actually violates the Constitution, which it might. I, I do admit that I do think that there is some good possibility that you could find that these executive orders do violate the Constitution. Okay, But like I said, could be a really interesting battle if we see it. I really hope we don't. I really hope the two sides come together and put some actions into law that basically abrogate these executive orders and supersede them. And then we're kind of off and running with some things that aren't going to cause huge fights. Uh, We have a lot of people out there who have been really negatively impacted by the coronavirus pandemic. So really hope that everybody gets the relief that they need out of this thing. So that is kind of our constitutional law piece for the day. Uh, Probably the last constitutional law piece you will hear from me for a while because I'm definitely by no means a constitutional law expert, but this was really kind of an interesting thing that has popped up and is kind of a really, really big topic to look at. So want to look at a listener question as we transition here. And the question is this, I was hit by someone in a rental car and I am being told that I cannot sue the rental car company because the person driving did not have any insurance. And As always, I don't prep these questions before. I just read them as they come in. And that person that that said that you can't sue the rental car companies, well, that's right, okay? You can't sue a rental car company who is truly just in the business of renting cars uh, because of a car crash, okay? Now, could you, if there was other circumstances, potentially, yes. Uh, If there was some kind of malfunction with the car that, the rental car company knew about, and they put the car on the road, knowingly that the car had had some kind of malfunction. Yes, you could really potentially see some sort of action there, but your normal everyday rear-end car crash can't sue the rental car company. It comes back to the Graves Amendment, and what that deals with is companies who are in the business of renting cars cannot be sued. Most rental car companies have... $10,000 per person or $20,000 per crash in coverage doesn't extend beyond that. Can't go any after any assets. And like I said, you can't sue them. Um, if you get an unsatisfactory offer or no offer, or they completely deny the claim outright, you just don't have the ability to do it. Now, 
There are some exceptions to that, although uh, from talking to other attorneys in the state, some of these exceptions are now being brought in by the courts to fall under the Graves Amendment. Um, So just to take a quick look, I know this is a little bit off from the question, but kind of reins back in and it'll come back around. Uh, You go to your car dealer and and they take your car in for service and they give you a loaner car. Uh, There is a district in South Florida that has actually said that does fall under the Graves Amendment. Really not sure how because that business is in the business of servicing cars. And as a byproduct of that, they're giving you a car to borrow while your car is being serviced. So uh, kind of an interesting piece there here in Tampa, in uh, Hillsborough County, that you can sue the the service company. Okay, so uh, pick any big name dealer here in Tampa that has a service and they loan you the car uh, or loan somebody else a car and that person hits you. Uh, you could potentially go after them for insurance. Now, there are some caveats to it. And as always, there's exceptions to every rule. And it's not as clear cut as I'm making it sound right here at this moment in time. But as a general rule, yes, you could go after uh, that that service company or the, the car dealer with the service uh, piece to it as well. So that is the listener question of the day. As always, if you have a listener question, Lawfather at TampaLawfather.com. Send me an email. Call me, 855-LAWFATHER. You can also text that number as well and put your question out there, and uh, I'll look at answering that. Uh, As always, social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can also send me messages there with your questions, or if you want to make a public post and put it on the, the page with your question, you're welcome to do that as well. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. That is the show for today. Lawfather out. This is a forking around town with Tracy Guida quick fix on Radio Influence. In uh, Seminole, Big Jim's Tavern. Mm -hmm. That was interesting. I, you know, reminded me a lot of Eats. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's an old school place, uh, old school menu. Not a real pretentious place, just uh, just good down-home food, you know? Mm-hmm. Just you look at the menu, there's a lot on it. A lot. There's almost too much at times. Like, I thought each was like that a little bit. But it's okay if you have a crazy menu like that if your food is good, you know? And, and their food was good. I, I don't think they do social media even, so. They don't, yeah. and yeah, they should because some of the, I saw a lot of the dishes coming out, like the lobster tail. Yeah, I thought it looked, was, looked, was looked, nice. looked beautiful, yeah. yeah. They should because they should. They should. Yeah, everybody should. Everybody should. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had a beef on weck, and I have to say, it it was fantastic. Yeah, I, mean, I really never had one before. Even though know, I worked at Eats, I never. <laughs> really, I just never. I never ordered it. The funny thing, the first beef on weck I ever had was at Eats, and I was thrown. I mean, I love the bread is amazing, the the horseradish amazing, uh, and now I'm kind of hooked on beef on weck. Just don't see them too too many places here in Tampa. I know it's a Buffalo thing, I believe. It it is yes, absolutely Anchor Bar. Same place as Up the north, chicken yeah. wings. <laughs> Correct. Forking Around Town with Tracy Guida can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and RadioInfluence.com.